fewer faces than there were here last week. I suppose that's to be somewhat expected. That's actually uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about this morning. I do hope you enjoyed your Easter holiday. One of the things you might have noticed is that a lot of the same movies tend to play every year at Easter. For one thing, ABC famously plays the Ten Commandments each and every year. They've been doing that for uh, 50 years now. Turner Classic Movies runs a, a marathon of different Easter-themed movies, and we missed that this year, but uh, one that they play that we like to watch, actually, is Ben-Hur. They play that every year, and if I'm going to watch a Charlton Heston biblical epic, I'm going to pick Ben-Hur over the Ten Commandments. But another one that they play that we saw for the first time a couple of years ago is Easter Parade. That's one that some of you have probably seen. It's a musical starring Judy Garland and Fred Astaire, and it's built around the Irving Berlin song of the same name. And the movie ends with photographers taking pictures of Judy Garland as she's all dressed up walking down Fifth Avenue. Fred Astaire proposes to her. It, it echoes the song. A lot of you will probably remember the song. Uh, in your Easter bonnet, with all the frills upon it, you'll be the grandest lady in the Easter parade. If you know that, that's in your head now, so you're welcome for that. The Easter parade on Fifth Avenue really is something to see, and you can see a picture of it here back at its origins. Back in the late 19th century, when a lot of the large Gothic cathedrals in New York City began to decorate with large Easter floral arrangements. And so after church, a lot of the well-to-do and all of their finery would go out and they'd stroll down Fifth Avenue and they'd go from church to church to see the different flowers. But at some point over the years, that evolved from this uh, to something a little bit different. People in the most garish clothing you can possibly imagine. Now, some of these outfits cost hundreds, even thousands of dollars. And here are these people going up and down the street outside of some of the largest churches, the most famous ones in New York City, Trinity, Episcopal, uh, St. Patrick's, on Easter Sunday. But they're not there to attend any sort of church service. They're there for the parade. Of course, we know that Easter Sunday is a special day in a lot of churches. It has a reputation as being the one day a year when you can get people to come to church. And that stereotype exists for a reason, because it's largely true. Even here, last Sunday, we had 195 people. That's more than we've had any previous Sunday since I started here. And I'm not going to count everyone right now, but just a rough estimate, even my preachers count, we're not going to make 195 today. Of course, we said last week, Easter is a special day. So many people view it that way. We don't celebrate the resurrection of Jesus in particular on Easter because we recognize that each and every Lord's Day, we're called to remember and to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. It certainly was a special day, and it was and is a day worthy of celebration. I think here 
of one of those Bible stories that we all know from the time that we're children. The story of David and Goliath. We think about David in this fight. And poor David didn't have a chance. I mean, here on the one hand stands Goliath. He's seven plus feet tall. He has a helmet. He has a breastplate. He has a, a sword and a spear and a shield. And he's a seasoned warrior, spoiling for a fight. He's eager to start one. And then on the other hand, here's David, a boy. No armor, no sword, no shield. All he has is a little rawhide sling and handful of smooth stones that he picked up. If you were taking bets on that fight, what sort of odds would you lay for David? 100 to 1? Even at 100 to 1, it's a sucker's bet. No one is going to bet on David because he doesn't have a chance. And yet, wonder of all wonders, God gives David the victory. Just like his father David, Jesus didn't stand a chance. The powers of the world were arrayed against him. The Roman Empire was against him. The Jewish religious elite, the establishment, was against him. The citizens of Jerusalem were against him. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of voices were crying out, Crucify him! Crucify him! They beat him. They forced a crown of thorns down upon his head. They mocked him. They spit on him. They drove spikes through his wrist and through his feet and nailed him to a cross. And there he hung, suspended between heaven and earth until he died. He didn't have a chance. But three days later, God raised him from the dead. God reversed the verdict of the world. The angels announced, he's not here. He's risen, even as he said. The stone had been rolled away. The victory had been won. But as far as the world was concerned, nothing had changed. Tiberius was still emperor in Rome. Pontius Pilate was still the governor of Judea. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were still squabbling amongst themselves. As far as the world knew, nothing had changed. Everything was just the same as it had always been. But the world was wrong. The resurrection of Jesus made a difference. It certainly made a difference in the lives of his disciples, men and women who followed him and whose lives would never be the same because now Jesus was alive. The world might look the same, but the way they lived in the world would never again be the same. He'd won victory over sin, over death. And so Paul could write in 1 Corinthians 15, as we read last week, thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's the spirit that ought to permeate the church. That sense of, of joy and optimism, that ought to characterize everything that we do. Jesus Christ is one. No longer do we have to fear death as the great unknown. No longer do we have to go through this life uncertain and helpless and hopeless. Because Christ is alive. With that in mind, I want us to consider John chapter 21, where we find one of these life-changing, world-shaping resurrection appearances recorded. John 21, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We'll go with you. They went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This story, this resurrection appearance, is one that a lot of us probably remember. I want us to draw just a, a few lessons from it together this morning. The first one is the importance of obedience. Now, as a preacher, one of the things you find yourself doing a lot is evaluating the state of the church. That could be the church here locally. It could be the church more universally. What's the church doing? Where is it going? What do we need to do differently or better? And it's not just preachers. I know all five of our elders are concerned about that. I've talked with some of the deacons about things like that, and I know a lot of you individually think about things like that from time to time. We come up with various different ideas, and sometimes we think, well, what we need to do is we need better programs, or we need to do things bigger and, and better, or what we need to do, the, the church needs to be more polished and refined. 
Or on the other hand, maybe the church needs to go down and to uh, try to reach out to the, the salt of the earth types. It doesn't matter what the particular proposal is. On and on and on we could go with this, but the idea is we need to be doing more things and different things and, and better things. There are all these great ideas. I'm not saying those ideas are unimportant. It's always good for us to try to reevaluate what we're doing, and I know the elders, every time that they meet, they discuss different proposals and ideas that they have. But what I would point out is that when we re read this story, this should be a great encouragement to us. Because what God demands of us, above all else, is obedience. It's faithfulness. He doesn't ask that we be the best fishermen. He doesn't demand that we have the best and newest equipment, that we have a fancy boat equipped with sonar technology. He doesn't even ask that we be particularly skillful in throwing out the net. What he says is, obey me. Make sure you're on the right side of the boat. Throw the net out. I'll supply the fish. It reminds me of what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. The second lesson that emerges from this story is God's great provision. I don't know about you, but I imagine if I'd been all night long fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and this is hard manual labor, throwing the nets out there, trying to catch something, nothing to eat, my stomach would start to think that my throat had been cut. I'd be hungry, famished. Jesus knew that. Even after the wonder of the resurrection, even after all of these throngs and crowds of people, there were seven men there in a boat on the Sea of Galilee who were hungry. And Jesus took the time to feed them. Doesn't that remind us that our Lord is aware of our needs, whatever they are? And that whenever we're hungry or we're in need or we're sick or whenever we're lonely or we're sad or we're hurting or whatever it is, our Lord knows. And He's there to reach into our lives and to minister to us. The third lesson we find in this story, God does not give up. We find, and some of you will probably remember this, the story that follows from verse 15 to the end of the chapter is this beautiful story of restoration. Jesus asked Peter time and time again, Peter, do you love me? And he asked him that because Peter effectively has given up. When he says, I'm going fishing, that's what that means. It's over. It's done with. I'm going back to the old life. This, this just isn't going to work. So Peter says, I'm going fishing. I've given up. But God didn't give up on Peter. God kept reminding Peter of his great love for him and kept asking him to love him in return. A love that should prompt him to service, then go and feed my sheep. 
I worry sometimes as Christians, we get the wrong idea about God. We think that He's just there eager to throw us out of the boat, I guess, if we want to stick with the analogy that we have here. That is, if we don't say or do the right things, He's going to kick us out. He's just watching for us to, to slip up in some way. But that's not true. It's quite the opposite, in fact. When we stumble, when we fall, God's always there. And He's eager to pick us back up, to dust us off and to send us on our way again with a renewed commitment to Him, with even greater opportunities for service than before. If, well, let Him. We have to allow Him to do that. And that brings us closely related to the fourth great lesson from this story. It's that of direction. God wants to provide direction, plan, and purpose to your life. We probably all know that old aphorism. If you want to hear God laugh, tell Him your plans. And we can probably all identify with that to one degree or another. I know I certainly can identify with that in my own life. I had a plan. I touched on this somewhat. Actually, the very first day I was here when I tried out, I taught Bible class and sort of introduced myself. My plan after I graduated from college was to go on and to study history. And I was going to get my PhD. I was going to be a professor. I even got into my top choice, the University of Virginia. But they didn't give me any money. No stipend, no fellowship, no teaching assistantship, nothing. So it's obviously untenable. And I didn't have any plan B. What am I going to do? Well, it just so happened that at that time, a friend of mine was a preacher at a rural congregation in Spicewood in the Austin area, and I'd, I'd visited there several times. I'd filled in for him at times. And he was leaving. They were going to have an opening. And I thought, well, maybe this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Maybe it's what I should have been doing all along. It's hard to kick against the goads, as the Lord told one preacher at one point. And so I told them I was interested, and they decided to give me a shot, and the rest is history. I can't say for certain, I can't identify exactly that, that was God's direction in my life. But what I can say is if it wasn't for that sequence of events, I wouldn't be right here in this pulpit this morning. And I'm convinced that this is where God intended for me to be. I can tell you that Abby wasn't part of my plan either. <laughs> Abby and I were, uh, were just friends for years. And we had more than one conversation that was awkward for both of us when I told her I just want to be friends. And she had other intentions. And then, well, people ask me sometimes, when did y'all start dating? All I know is at one point we were friends, and then one day all of a sudden we were engaged. And I'm still not, I'm still not entirely clear on how that happened. The point is, here we are, all of us, we have our neat little plans. We know where the fish are, we know how to fish for them, we've got the method, everything's figured out. Step one, two, three, four. 
then God says, have you listened to my plan? Have you tried to figure out what my will is for your life? Do you know what my direction is for you? We need to endeavor to be more attuned to God's will. And we certainly need to take it into account when we're making plans in our lives. The fifth lesson, the final lesson, is this. God wants us to start fishing for men. Luke chapter 5, there's a similar story right at the outset of Jesus' ministry, one of the first stories that we have with his disciples. Jesus has just taught the multitudes out of the boat of Simon Peter, and after he's done, he says to Peter, cast the boat off into the lake. We're going to go fishing. And Peter says, well, Lord, we fished all night long, and we didn't catch anything. But, you know, if you insist, he's going to humor him. So they go out into the sea, and you remember on that occasion, they throw the nets out, and they catch so many fish that they're almost bursting. The nets are coming apart at the seams. And they haul them back up into the boat, and as they're going to shore, the boat's literally starting to sink because there are so many fish there that they caught. And after that wonderful experience, Jesus tells them, all right, now you're going to go out just like this, and you're going to fish for men. We've come through the glory of the resurrection one more time. We've celebrated again the fact that Jesus conquered sin and He conquered death and that He's alive and He gives us power and He gives us strength even today. And that's wonderful news. News that's worthy of being celebrated. And, and we rejoice in that. And you know, I rejoice even in all those people who were here last Sunday and who aren't here today that we won't see again till Christmas or maybe next Easter. Because you never know what sort of seed you might be planting and when that might start to grow in them at some point. But now for us, the dust settles. In liturgical groups, groups that follow a, a calendar and have different seasons, uh, Advent, Lent, Easter, after Easter season, which doesn't end until Pentecost properly, but after Easter, they go on what's called ordinary time. And I think that's very appropriate. Easter's behind us. This is ordinary time. We're back here to the regular business of life. And the Lord's message is, start fishing for men. Because there are a lot of people out there who don't know about the risen Jesus. There are a lot of people out there who don't know, know the, the joy of living their lives for Him. And our job is to go out and to try to reach them. Like those disciples on the Sea of Galilee, we can see a sea. A sea of people. People who are lost. People who are broken. People who are hurting. People who have never known the joy of serving the Lord and they're never going to know it. Unless you and I show them. And we tell them. And my challenge to all of us, all of you, and this includes me too, let's endeavor to do the best of our ability in trying to go out 
in whatever way that we can, telling, showing, and the ways that we live our lives, I hope all of us can make a greater effort to meet that challenge the Lord has given us. Perhaps this morning, you're one of those who's here who's never known the joy of serving the Lord, and you need to come to Him for the first time today. If that's the case, I want to invite you to put your faith and your trust in Him, to turn to God in repentance and to be buried with Jesus in baptism. Have your sins washed away. Be added to His people. Have that promise of future resurrection, victory that He offers. If you're here this morning and you already are a Christian, but you haven't been busy about ordering your life and living your life the way that He'd have you to, you need to make changes. If we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and sing. Wonderful, wonderful day, day I will never forget. 
after I'd wandered in darkness away, Jesus, my Savior, I met. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend aim at the need of my heart. Shadows dispelling with joy, I am telling, has made me all the darkness depart. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. When at the cross the Savior made me whole, my sins were washed away and mine eye was turned to day. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Now I've a hope that will surely endure after the passing of time. I have a future for heaven for sure there in the mansion sublime. And it's because of that wonderful day when at the cross I believe <laughs> riches supernal, having a pernal, that's just hand I receive. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. When at the cross the Savior made me whole, my sins were washed away, and my night being turned to day. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Pray with me, please. Our loving God, our Father, uh, we are so grateful for this Lord's Day. We thank Thee, Father, for giving us the privilege to come before You this day and praise Thee, Father, through, the, through our worship, uh, praise Thee, Father, through our study of Your Word and through our song. We are thankful, Father, for Your Son, our Savior. We are thankful, Father, that uh, You love us as You do. Now, Father, we ask again that You would be with those that are on our sick list, that You would comfort them, and if it be Your will, Father, restore their health. We also ask, Father, that You would be with those that have lost loved ones, or, that are currently grieving over the loss. Uh, we ask that you would comfort them and, uh, and help them cope with this loss. Uh, Father, we, we know that you're the great comforter and, and you can do this, Father. Now, Father, again, we ask uh, that you be with us, that you guide us, that you go with us as uh, we go through the rest of this week, that you help us be good examples of what a Christian should be. Uh, we ask now, Father, that you forgive us of our sins. These things we ask in your son's name, amen.